But everybody knows about David and Bathsheba. This is not a, a new story. It just seems that where there's scandal in the Bible, everyone just seems to know about it. And uh, this is one of those stories where scandal is going to hit the palace. And so while the narrative will not be new, and even many of the truths we cover won't be new, uh, there will be some good reminders for us and encouragement for us to make sure that we are fortifying ourselves and that we are uh, protecting our hearts uh, from Satan. He's constantly after us. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Second Samuel chapter 11. And verse 1 through 5 will be where we open, and then we'll go from there. The Bible says, And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. She was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am... With child. The title of the message this evening is this The Giant That Brought David Down. The Giant That Brought David Down. Old Goliath couldn't bring David down, but David's own sinful desires are about to bring him to his knees and cause great problems in his life, really, for the rest of his life. Let's pray this evening. God, help us as we look at the Bible tonight. Lord, to have a somber attitude and understand that all of us in here are but flesh and blood. And Lord, um, it is a difficult and treacherous journey to make it all the way through our Christian life without having fallen into some deep sin. But Lord, through your grace and through your help and by uh, being aware of the devil and the enemy, we can do it. Lord, as we look at David and how he fell tonight, Lord, may we be reminded of the things that we need to shore up in our own lives. And God, uh, use the message in our hearts. Lord, uh, strengthen us. Help us to be honest with ourselves this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I have a whole lot to unpack here in this chapter. It's a lengthy chapter, so we're going to forego any sort of introduction this evening and jump right into the outline for sake of time and see what God has in store for us this evening. So if you have your half sheet there, uh, let's take some notes. Number one, notice David's complacency. David's complacency. Go back with me and look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and look at verse number one. The Bible says, and it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle. Notice that kings Go forth to battle. David's the king, but did David go to battle? No. The Bible says that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried, notice the last sentence, David tarried still at Jerusalem. We have seen David accomplish some amazing things since we met him as a young man in 1 Samuel chapter number 16. Here would be his stellar resume if David were to put together such a resume. He slew Goliath with a sling and a smooth stone. As a teenager, he led Israel's army into war and to victory. He killed 200 Philistines and earned the hand of the king's daughter. He honorably passed up on two opportunities to kill Saul, who was trying to kill him. All of this accomplished before the age of 30. Uh, when he was made king, he immediately overtook Jerusalem and made it Israel's captor, uh, a capital. He moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and led the people to worship God with all their hearts. Through the strength of war, uh, he overtook the enemies of Israel and established Israeli dominance in the world. Uh, then he honored his friend Jonathan by loving on his paralytic son Mephibosheth. David had been hard at work doing God's work. 
He had pursued God with his entire heart and led God's people to do the same. We read through uh, this list of tangible things that David did, but the intangible is just as important. He led Israel to love and worship God. He, as the king, loved the Lord with all of his heart and led the people to worship the Lord with all of their hearts. David has climbed the top of his own set of mountains And now he is ready to take it easy. You see, in David's mind, we get to 2 Samuel 11, in David's mind, he has arrived. He's offered to build the Lord a temple, and the Lord refused to let him do it. So instead, he went out and conquered other countries, and he's got tributary money flowing in to the king's palace there. He has money being set aside so that when his son is of age, his future son is of age, he can build the palace. So David now has done everything that on his checklist he desired to do as a shepherd boy, and as a man on the run, as a refuge, now, rather as a fugitive, now here he is king. He's checked every box. He's gotten it all done. And now David thinks it's time for him to just lay back and take it easy. And this is a big, big mistake. This is a big mistake. For you to ever believe that in the Christian life you have arrived, you are setting yourself up for a great fall. Oh, I don't care if you've been saved a few months, a few years, several decades. I don't care if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, or in your 80s. My friend, you cannot take your foot off the accelerator when it comes to your walk with God. Listen, you should be content with what God's given you. You should be content with your material goods. You should be content with your relationships. You should never, ever, ever be content with your walk with the Lord. There's always, always room to grow and room to improve. But David now is taking his foot off the gas. He's put it in cruise control, if you will. And now he's just going to coast through his life. David, let me ask you a question. What are you doing in 2 Samuel 11? David would say, well, I'm taking it easy. And David, uh, uh, where are you supposed to be? And well, I'm supposed to be in battle with my men. But, but I, I've done my part. Now I can sit back and I can catch my breath. I've done my part. I've gone to war. I've, I've defeated the enemies of the Lord. I've driven them back. And now this little puny battle with the Ammonites, listen, uh, that, that is, uh, I'll let Joab take care of that. I've done my part. But yes, but David, uh, uh, where are you right now? Where are you right now, David? Well, I'm lying on my bed. I'm sleeping in. I'm idle. I'm idle. And as I lay on my bed and I sleep in, I'm feeling lustful, David says. I'm feeling lethargic. I'm feeling fleshly. Someone wisely said this. They said, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. Um, I look around our country today, and while our unemployment rate is not necessarily as high as maybe it has been in times past. Did you know the unemployment rate does not account for all of the people who were on unemployment, rolled off of it, and never went and got a job? There are millions of Americans who are out of work and not looking for work. And they're idle. And they're laying around. And they're getting themselves in trouble. But it isn't just folks who have rolled off of unemployment and not collecting a check, oftentimes it's working people. It's folks who look like they have it all together on the outside. You have that idle time and you're left to to your own wares. You're left to your own vices. You're left to that idle time and Satan is going to take that and he is going to ruin you. I want you to imagine a deer that's running through the woods. And uh, just running at full speed, gall- uh, gallanting through the woods there. And you have a hunter up in his tree stand. You know what? He's probably not going to be able to shoot and kill that deer. That deer's going to get away. He's at full speed right past the hunter. Especially if there's any distance between him and the hunter. The hunter, might, even if he's a great shot, very low chance he's going to be able to drop that, that buck. But that same deer then turns around and comes back and stops right in front of the hunter and he's grazing. Well, he might as well, if that hunter has any sort of aim or experience, 
that deer is as good as dead. And some of us, we wander through life and we're coasting. And spiritually, we're not where we ought to be. We're not pressing on the upward way. We're not, we're not gaining new heights, right? We're not standing on the promises. We're not putting on the armor of God. And Satan can square us right up and he can take us out. You have to understand that uh, the point I'm making right now in the sermon is especially to people who've been saved 20, 30, 40 years. I've been saved for 34 years. I praise God for my salvation. I'm glad I was saved as a four-year-old boy, and I'm glad my testimony is very boring. I wasn't saved from a deep, deep life of sin and shame and all that. I was saved as a young man and raised in a sheltered home. And while I've done some things I'm ashamed of and and, and have repented of and been forgiven of, I've never ever done anything worthy of putting me in prison or any of of that sort of thing. I've never been addicted to some sort of um, uh, something you put in your body. I praise God for all that. But can I just say this, that just because Pastor Lejeune has been saved for 34 years does not mean that I am not a candidate for Satan to drop me down to my knees and and hurt me and wound me. You've been saved here, you're here tonight, you've been saved for many, many decades. The sermon is especially for you this evening. We get to where we go through the routine. You get up and go to church Sunday morning, come back Sunday evening, come back Wednesday evening, you go to work, and the next thing you know, you turn around and you're not really growing, you're coasting. You're coasting. And to you tonight, I would say, you are right where devil wants you. You are right where David was. David became complacent. David, it's the time where kings go to war. But David, where are you? David says, well, I'm on my bed. I'm feeling lustful. I'm feeling fleshly. I'm not in my place. David's complacency. Number two, notice David's covetousness. David's covetousness. The sermon is entitled, The Giant That Brought David Down. Now, for you grammar folks, it should be the giant that, da- that brought down David. Amen? You're not supposed to end uh, that in a preposition, but I just felt that it sounded more natural to say brought David down, so I left it that way. Um, the giant that brought da- uh, David down. We know David by two characters. All right, We know him by Goliath and we know him by Bathsheba. That's pretty much how people think of David. When they think about him, and when we think of Goliath, we think of what? We think of the giant that David brought down. Well, now we're going to talk about the giant that brought David down. And by the way, that giant was not Bathsheba. Was not Bathsheba. That giant was David's own sin. The giant of fear fell to David. The giant of fear fell to David. Goliath on the battlefield could not take David down. Everyone else ran in fear. David ran toward the giant, and fear had no grip on David. David slew the giant, and the giant fell. The giant of fear fell to David. Goliath was no chance against David's courage for the Lord. The giant of loneliness fell to David. Um, Saul chased him around the wilderness and even though uh, uh, David was lonely and we have many Psalms to record his loneliness and his sadness and his struggle, that giant fell to David as well. He overcame the giant of loneliness. He slew that giant down. He killed that giant all the way and David stood over that giant, chopped its head off and David won the battle against loneliness. So the giant of fear could not get David, and the giant of loneliness could not get David. The giant of depression fell to David. You may remember the Amalekites came in and stole David's wives and the wives and children of his men and burned the city to the ground. And uh, there David is. uh, uh, But depression and discouragement could not take him down. The Bible says about David that he encouraged himself in the Lord. He was distraught, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. So the giant of fear fell to David, and the giant of loneliness fell to David, and the giant of depression fell to David, but Satan had uh, tried many different giants to conquer David, and, and, the, and Satan had failed every time. But David had a great weakness, and Satan was ready to exploit it. Satan was ready to exploit it. And I want to say this to you tonight. Your weakness may, may or may not be devil, uh, uh, David's weakness, but Satan will exploit your weakness just like Satan exploited David's weakness. And I believe this too. Satan will wait and pick and choose his time where you have a great amount of influence and then he'll exploit that weakness so that he can do as much damage 
as possible. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, warns us against, against covetousness. Listen here. Moses wrote on the tablet, From the mouth of God Himself, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Listen. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And that's exactly who Bathsheba was. That was David's neighbor. That was David's neighbor's wife. Nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. David's covetousness. Let me give you three giants under this thought of covetousness that got David. Letter A, the giant of sexual deviance. The giant of sexual deviance. Look with me at verse number 2 of Second Samuel chapter number 11. The Bible says, And it came to pass in an eventime that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. The woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came into, unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned into her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Amazing. As far as we know, David and Bathsheba up to this point were only together one time. And in that one time, she got pregnant. Be sure your sin will find you out. Now, before I get back into the story of David and Bathsheba, I'd like to sort of set the, the framework for what, I'm, what I want to say about them. And, and I just want to say this to everyone here tonight under my voice and those watching online. Satan has many hooks in the water for, by which he, he catches and destroys humanity. I mentioned some of the ones that David conquered a moment ago. Loneliness, boy, has really gotten a lot of people. Loneliness has, uh, a lot of folks have fallen or been caught by the hook of loneliness. Um, fear. I really think that fear is a hook that uh, Satan has snatched and snarled a lot of Christians and really limited what they do for the Lord because they live and operate by fear. Uh, I believe that emotional imbalances or d discouragement and depression, Satan uses events to discourage and depress us so that he can keep us from being effective for the Lord. But in the day and time in which we live, the one Satan uses uh, uh, and is the most effective, especially with our men and even with many of our women, is the, are the hooks that revolve around sexual impurity. Satan's highest volume, most effective hooks, all revolve around sexual sins. Sexual sins. God created this act to be a beautiful covenant thing between a husband and a wife. Nothing bonds two people together emotionally, physically, and spiritually than this beautiful activity. The sexual experience is truly a gift from God for the bonds of marriage and only for the bonds of marriage. Turn over to Genesis chapter 1 in your Bibles. Genesis 1. When I grew up, many of my friends, and I know this from talking to them later in life, we didn't talk about this when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, but Many of my friends and many people who are my age, I've talked to in my adult years, this whole topic was just taboo on such a level that parents didn't even talk to their kids about it. I just didn't talk to them about it. And if your parents had the quote-unquote talk with you, it was usually very short and very awkward. And um, the word uh, that we're talking about tonight was taboo and just not used. And my friend, I just want to say tonight that we need to be careful with this topic. We need to be very careful with this topic. And I'm going to be 
very careful with this topic tonight. But parents, you have an obligation and a duty to talk to your kids about this. You talk to them about it at a young age, uh, not, not too young, but at, at the appropriate age. And you make sure they get that information from you and not their friends at school, not some locker room talk, not from the TV, not from the YouTube, not from a teacher. They need to get it from you. They need to learn from you. Sit them down and teach them and teach them that this is not sin. It is sin when it's done out of place. It is sin when it's done at the wrong time. It is sin when it's done, done uh, with the wrong person. But it is not sin. It is something God gave us and commanded us to do. Look at Genesis 1. In verse 22, we find the very, very first command God gave humanity was to, uh, was to a husband and wife, and it was to go and make babies. Look at Genesis 1.22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let fowls multiply in the earth. I gave you the verse about the animals. But you can find the same verse. I grabbed the wrong one. Amen. Uh, you can find the same verse where God tells Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. How about Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4? Marriage. Someone said, oh, well, uh, uh, marriage isn't in the Bible. Oh, yes, it is in the Bible. Absolutely it's in the Bible. And uh, people make all kinds of ridiculous arguments to try to discredit this idea uh, about premarital sex being a sin. Listen, uh, uh, premarital sex is a sin. Make no mistake about it. If you're not married, you have no right being involved in this. Hebrews 13, 4 says marriage is honorable and all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers. Look here. This is a promise from God. God will judge. God will judge. It doesn't say God might judge. It doesn't say God will think about it. God will judge. There is no question that God will judge you. Now, the story of David and Bathsheba. David is home. He's got extra time on his hands. He's not where he's supposed to be. We looked at the complacency a few minutes ago. And here you find David. He's wandering out on his rooftop late at night. And he looks out and sees a woman who is bathing on her rooftop. And he sees her. And uh, obviously, she's taking a bath. So she's not wearing any thing and there's lust in his heart her direction and he inquires about who she is and uh, she's brought in the palace and the two of them are uh, sexually intimate and they have now committed a great sin between them uh, we live in a world where adultery still happens on a regular basis adultery still happens on a regular basis Honestly, I am glad that I have not been told about any adultery that's taken place in the, in the church in my time here. I have never had it brought to my attention that a husband has cheated on his wife or wife has been unfaithful to her husband in my entire tenure as pastor here. It's never been brought to my attention. I rejoice in that. But that doesn't mean it's never happened. That doesn't mean it hasn't been dealt with. All around the world, every day, a wife's heart is crushed from her husband's infidelity. And a husband's heart is broken over his wife's infidelity. But Satan is now using a different sexual hook to destroy humanity. Adultery has now slid into the second hook of high volume. And now... The hook of pornography has become the highest volume lure that Satan has in his arsenal. Satan has in the water. With the invention of the internet and smartphones, pornography has become the unspoken sin of our generation. Men and women alike, and statistically it blows my mind, but women are addicted to pornography now at the same rate that men are. Based on the stats I've seen. Men and women alike are addicted at a high volume. Nobody wants to admit it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Statistically, there's a high volume of people that attend this church that are addicted to pornography. We are isolated and ashamed and secretive 
And it is rotting our souls out to the core. It is very slowly destroying marriages. It is corrupting our youth. Oh, it is corrupting our youth. And while I am talking about hardcore pornography that can be viewed, I'm also talking about the stuff that you and I have become desensitized to. I'm talking about bikini-clad women on the front of magazines in a grocery store. I'm talking about anime figures that pop up on a child's uh, game uh, as an ad. I'm talking about the sexual lust that's stirred within us when we have a five-second commercial pop up before a YouTube video. We look the other way or we shrug our shoulders at it and we say, well, that's the world we live in. And the light, softcore pornography leads to hardcore pornographic addiction. I don't know that I have shared this angle here. I have thought it for many years. I had someone ask me many, many years ago, they say, Pastor, they said, Pastor Lejeune, why do we struggle with such sexual perversion in this country? And the very first answer that came to mind was, was, was right away, it was this. When you take a culture and you dip it in sexual perversion for 50, 60, 70 years, you're going to get some really strange stuff. And nobody should be surprised. Nobody should be surprised. I read my Bible and I see that premarital sex is a sin. I see that extramarital sex is a sin. But yet Christians now are arguing about whether or not Lesbian and gay sex is a sin. And how do we get over there? I'm still stuck here at, if you're not married as a man and a woman, it's wrong. But yet we want to argue about that over there. What has happened? Sexual deviance. Statistically, pornography websites are some of the most viewed and visited every single day. A handful of years ago, Pornography websites made the list of top ten sites visited around the world for the year. We've become aloof, but the reality is pornography is destroying us. It's destroying our very view and concept of human sexuality. And worst of all, It breaks the heart of our God. Men and women alike need to come clean. They need to confess their sin. They need to sit with a counselor or a spouse or a brother in Christ. And they need to get real, real help and accountability. Pastor, I could never ever admit to it. I could never ever tell anyone. I could never ever admit. I could never ever share. If so, it would ruin my reputation. Do you know what people would think about me? Pastor, if that got out, it would just destroy my name. It would, uh, it would destroy uh, my marriage. And I'm telling you right now, it is already destroying you. It already is. The best thing for you to do is admit you have a problem and get real help. Because there are tools out there that can help you overcome this. Sexual sin and sexual deviance is one of those hooks that Satan will latch into your spiritual jaw. And you can yank all day trying to get it out of your jaw, your spiritual jaw. On your own it cannot be and will not be removed. cannot be done. You have a pornography problem, you will not overcome it on your own. I guarantee you that. You won't do it. You're going to have to eventually sit and look someone in the eye and say, I have a problem and I need help. And the hard truth is that there are enough people that attend this church and enough people that live in this community that struggle with this sin. 
my, sorry, I, 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 it's hard to say this, but you are not in the minority. The majority of people struggle with this in some way. If it isn't the majority, it is a high volume of people. What is sexual deviance? It's covetousness. It is the desire to partake of something that is not yours, that does not belong to you. It is a perversion of God's gift to married couples. Many, many men and women have failed to give God their heart and life uh, because they have been reeled into Satan's boat by the hook of sexual deviance. But this was not David's only problem. You see, the, sex, the, the giant of sexual deviance has a couple of more siblings. Letter B, notice, the giant of dysfunction. Take your Bibles, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. In verse 17, I'm going to show you a verse I did not even know existed in this context until I started studying the life of David, studying his life for the series. I've read it, reading my Bible many times, but just never made the connection until I began to put this together. Some people think, well, how could God just look the other way and let David be involved in the disgusting act of being married to multiple women? And I would say God did not look the other way. God did not look the other way. In fact, God went out of his way to have Moses tell David and all the kings to follow him that this was not to happen. This was not allowed. This was a sin in and of itself. Look at Deuteronomy 17. Look at verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives. Speaking of, let me back up. You back up a handful of verses. I believe it's verse 12, if my, if my memory serves me correct. But earlier in the chapter, a handful of verses earlier in the chapter, God tells Moses to write down the behavior of their future king when they're settled in the land one day. And verse 17 uh, is talking about the future, Israel's future kings. Look at verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So they were not to accumulate wealth, and they were not to accumulate wives. Directly condemned. They were not to do that. You look at Solomon, the wisest man, by, uh, as the Bible describes, the wisest man ever to live, yet he acted so foolish. Why? Because money and uh, uh, an abundance of women ended up being his destruction, ended up taking him down. God said, I did not make you to be married to multiple people. I made you to be married to one person for the rest of your life and to cling and cleave and weave your heart in with that person. David blew right past this law of God. And by the time that we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David has already married multiple women. How many women was David married to? I have a hard time counting, to be honest with you. And in all the commentaries I've read on this, there's different opinions of how many women David is married to at this point. I call that dysfunction. I also want to make sure I make this very, very, very clear. Some people have preached this passage and they almost blame Bathsheba or blame women for David's problem. Women were not David's problem. David was David's problem. David was David's problem. It is clear that David, for a lack of better way of putting it, David was a sex addict. When Michal was not enough, he didn't just marry Abigail, he married two women at the same time. Later, he would marry even more women than that. Now, we don't live in a culture where polygamy is the norm. Yet. I hope it stays, I hope we stay away from polygamy. Amen? We need to return back to marriage being defined as one man and one woman for life. And there not being any confusion on that. But while polygamy is not a problem in today's culture, the same idea of a dysfunctional home has become the norm in our culture. Some of us create our own dysfunction. Others of us are born into great dysfunction. I have shared the story about Ina, the 14-year-old pregnant girl in inner city Chicago that got saved and started coming to our chapel church there when I was a Bible college student. Ina um, got saved and her entire life changed and 
Uh, she got her heart right with the Lord. She had been living in some sin with a boyfriend and upon getting saved, separated from the boyfriend and really tried to do her very best to do what was right. Went back and started living with her mother. I remember when Ina's baby was born. She brought that baby home and Andrew and I went by to visit Ina and that newborn baby to this 14-year-old girl. And I remember we left uh, that apartment. It was a duplex, maybe three or four apartments in this building. And we walked out the door and I looked up and I saw the window where the little bassinet was, where uh, baby uh, Ina's baby slept. And then right around the corner where the opposite apartment was, adjacent to that second floor apartment, there was another window of someone else who lived there with the window up and the most vulgar, vile, uh, uh, sexual music being blared out that window, coming right around and into the window where that little baby uh, just a few weeks old was sleeping and I said to my friend as we were going on to our next visit I said that child has little chance except for the grace of God born into dysfunction and what happens is we're born into dysfunction and unless we let God's grace reach down and really change us we repeat the dysfunction we repeat the dysfunction why did David marry multiple wives? Because he rationalized it. How was David able to rationalize it? Because all of the kings of his day were married to multiple women. And David said, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. And my friend, that is a terrible, terrible way to live. It isn't whether or not you're doing it or I'm doing it. It's what does the Bible say about how I should live? And if I'm doing something that's sinful and everyone else is looking the other way, then you shouldn't follow me. You follow the pastor as the pastor follows Christ. You follow the deacons as they follow Christ. You follow some brother and sister in the Lord as they follow Christ. But when they stop following Christ, my friend, you stay locked on the Lord and you keep doing what's right. Too often times our children end up falling into deep sin because they're letting mom and dad they're watching mom and dad involved in and letting that sin flow right into their home. Moms and dads, do you know what's going on within the four walls of your house? Do you know? Do you have any idea? I want you to imagine that uh, tomorrow night a couple shows up to your house for dinner. Woman's wearing a bikini. Guy's wearing a pair of shorts without a shirt on. And they show up and they say, hey, we want to come and have dinner at your table. You let them in the house and they sit there and they're taking God's name in vain and they're cursing and he slips out on the, uh, the, the front porch and he's smoking a joint and then he comes back in and they start having a fight and the next thing you know, he's shoving her on the couch and he's beating her and they're yelling at one another and the police get called and they get carried out. You say, Pastor, I would never let such dysfunction in my home. And I would say, you do all the time through your television. We let stuff just like that on our TV and we shrug our shoulders and say, well, whatever. I don't need to get into the cell phone situation. But do we even know what's going on in the cell phone screens of our children and our, even our spouses? Are we holding each other accountable? We allow sinful dysfunction, disorderliness in our home. And this is exactly why David ended up falling. Letter C, we see the other sibling to the giants of sexual deviance and dysfunction. Letter C, we see the giant of discontentment. The giant of discontentment. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says, And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. David, 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 what are you doing? David, you have a palace filled with beautiful women who you can look at as much as you want, when you want. What are you looking at? Why are you looking at another man's wife? You have a husband who's out on the couch with his smartphone looking at pornography while a wife falls asleep in bed by herself. 
we'd all stop and say that makes no rational sense, but it happens all the time. Here you have a wife in the bedroom who loves you, but you're out looking at another woman on your phone. Ladies pick up some steamy romance novel and they read that, or they're viewing pornography on their phone. They have a husband who loves the Lord, loves them, their own hearts defiled. Rationally, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. But why does it happen? Why did it happen to David? Why does it happen to so many today? I'm going to tell you why right now. Because we're never content with what God's given us. What God's given us is not good enough. And so we fantasize and we look elsewhere and get ourselves in trouble. What's the answer to this? Well, the answer, of course, is contentment. Let me say to this to those of you this evening listening in who are not married. Stay celibate. Stay celibate. Be content with your single status. God very well may allow you to marry on His timetable. You need to learn to be content with where you are right now in life. And here's what I'll say to all the single people in here. Marriage is not a cure-all for your sexual lust. You think, well, if I just get married, then I'll have you know, a, a person to aim all this energy at and, and all my problems go away. And I'll say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Watch this now. If you're corrupt before you get married, you're going to continue to be corrupt after you get married. Getting married doesn't fix it. Getting married doesn't fix it. If you have a pure heart before you get married, then you'll have a pure heart after you get married. And all the children here this evening, I just want to say this. Keep your heart pure. The Bible says in Matthew, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, so many of our youth today, they can't see God in the most basic things of life because their poor hearts have been corrupted by the contamination of sexual lust that's been poured and perversion that's been poured in their hearts at such a young age. Parents, I beg you, I implore you, and I do my very best to model this. Angela and I work very hard to model this as a married couple in this church and as married parents in this church. We do our absolute best to model this. Protect the hearts and minds of your children. I beg you, their future depends on it. The quality of their marriage depends on it. The quality of their life depends on it. Guard and protect and guard and protect and expect what you inspect. Because if not, they are reeling for a real hurting. To those of you who are married, take all of that energy that you're using to be secretive behind your spouse's back and instead get help and then pour yourself into pursuing the heart and life of your spouse. If David had invested the same energy into his marriage that he poured into covering up his affair, then he would have been in a much, much, much different, better place. Write this down. Covetousness is always born out of a heart of discontentment. Covetousness is always born out of a heart of discontentment. You show me someone who's covetous, I'll show you someone who's discontent. Covetousness is always born, always, always born out of a heart of discontentment. Discontentment says to God, what you gave me is not enough. Number one, David's complacency. Number two, David's covetousness. Let's look at the good guy in the story. All right, number three, notice Uriah's character. Meet Uriah. This is Bathsheba's husband. Uriah is an honorable man. In chapter 11, David's not so honorable. But Uriah is. While David is laying around lusty on his bed, Uriah is on a battlefield fighting a war. Letter A, speaking of Uriah's character, notice his life had purpose. His life had purpose. 
Look at verse number 6 with me. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Look at verse 6. And David, uh, David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So in the story, Bathsheba reports to David that she's pregnant. Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. What, what had Uriah been doing? Well, he'd been out fighting for his king. What had, David, what had David been doing? Well, David had been sleeping with Uriah's wife. So David brings Uriah home, and he's doing everything he can to make the, the, the child that Bathsheba's expecting uh, to appear to be Uriah's child. He brings him into the palace. He, he gives him the VIP treatment and, and tries to send him home to love on his wife. Well, did it work? Look down at verse number 9. 2 Samuel 11, verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. Wow! David brings in Uriah. He, he, he just makes his feast of a meal for him, all the meat the guy can eat, and says, All right, Uriah... Good to see you, buddy. Hey, we're going to let you get back out at war in a little bit. Hey, why don't you go home and just enjoy some time with your wife? And Uriah walks out the door, and he says, I'm not going home. I'm going to sleep right here on the doorstep of the palace. His life had purpose. Let her be noticed. He lived by principle. He lived by principle. Look at verse number 10. We'll read down through verse number 13. The Bible says, And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down into his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why, did, why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark, notice the principle here, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and, and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul livest, I will not do this thing. Wow. He said, look, my brothers are fighting on the battlefield, and I'm going to go home and love on my wife? Uh-uh. No. Uh-uh. They're out there dying, and for some strange reason, you have me hanging out here in the palace. I'm, I'm not interested, David. I'll sleep right here on the front step of the palace until you send me back to war. Verse 13, And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. So David says, well, let's get him drunk. Maybe then he'll go home. And he gets Uriah drunk. And instead of Uriah going home to see his wife, he finds some bed there in the palace and he just crashes in the stupor right there. He is so principled that even in his drunkenness, he still won't go home and see his wife. Boy, we need men of God who live by principle. We need men of God that says, I don't care what's out there. I'm going to do what's right. I don't care what everyone else is doing. I'm going to do what's right. I don't care how sinful this world is. Lord, my eyes are on you, and I am going to do what's right. I love what Job said in chapter 31 and verse 1. He said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? I just want to say here that while men uh, look at women with lust on a regular basis, do you know that women look at men with lust? You know that happens too? Now, maybe not in the same way that men look at women, but how many, how many women have looked around and said, you know what, I wish my husband was like that guy over there. You know, my husband's not very good with the kids. He's great with his kids. I wish my husband was like that. You know what, um, my husband never puts his arm. I hear a woman saying, my husband never puts his arm around me in church and never is sweet with me. I mean, I wish my, that, that guy over there, he, you know, he, he, he's great at that. I, I, I sure wish my husband could be like that. Oh, aren't we guilty 
of sin, of discontentment and covetousness. When a woman starts hyper-focusing on her unmet needs, she'll begin to seek out a man who will meet those needs. The next thing you know, has fallen into great sin. Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Let me encourage everyone here tonight, and I'm not going to ramrod this down your throat, but I want to try my best tonight to give you some tools to help equip you to protect yourself from sexual sin. And I I mentioned the invention of the internet and smartphones has really hurt this generation. And let me encourage you to look into some software that you can put on your laptop, uh, your Android or iOS device, uh, iPad, tablet. Um, It's called Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes is so intrusive that once you set it up, no matter what you try to delete or turn off, uh, it, it will stop you. Amen? And it will catch you if you're doing anything wrong. And listen, remove even the temptation away. I'm not standing up here tonight saying everyone needs to put that on their phone. But I would encourage you to at least look into it. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 6 says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. A faithful man who can find. We need men and women in this world who are faithful. I'm almost done tonight. We're going to read much of the rest of the um, chapter. I'll just have a little bit of comment. We'll be done. I just, the Lord gave me this as I was sitting down here right before the sermon started. It's amazing how few people truly make it a full lifetime through the Christian life without falling into sin and falling out of church. Now, you can't lose your salvation. I'm not preaching that tonight. I don't know how many people that I know, I've lost count, that through one hook or the other, Satan has caught them and put them up as a trophy above his mantle. The amount of preachers I know that have fallen. But how about the amount of church members I've known that have fallen? It's so hard to go from childhood to an old life in the grave while staying faithful to the Lord and faithful to church and free of deep sin. If you know someone that's fallen into sin, don't judge them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray God will restore them. You do your best to try to help them. You say, well, pastor, if it's so hard to do it, then how do I do it? Oh, you have to realize that any sin can get you at any time. None of us are above sin. None of us. None of us are above any sin. You're having a struggle. You, you uh, uh, cocoon yourself with people who can help you. I think of James. He said, confess your faults one to another. Hey, what if one of you in here tonight decided to seek out a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, listen, I'm just going to be real honest with you. I've got a struggle, and I need help. I'm just going to tell you the truth. This is where I'm struggling, and I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to help me. You know what? That's a whole lot better than battling a sin that you can't handle and then letting your spiritual life be burned to the ground and you become a casualty. A faithful man who can find. Why is it so hard to find a faithful man? Because Satan knows exactly what giant is in your way to slay you. Number four, and lastly, notice David's crime and cover-up. David's crime and cover-up. Look at verse 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter. This is despicable. David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. 
Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. Back in 1 Samuel, we saw David operating by situational ethics, and we saw the mess he made. But oh, this is so much worse. David has committed great sin by sleeping with his soldier's wife and impregnating her. Then he tried to get Uriah to come home and be with her, but that failed. So now he sends the death note in Uriah's own hand. How valiant was Uriah? David sealed the letter and gave it to Uriah, knowing that Uriah was such an honorable man he would not read his own death note. David has committed adultery, and now to cover up, he's committed murder. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house. And she became his wife and bare him a son. Right about now, David is breathing a big sigh of relief. Inwardly, he feels guilty. We know this from chapter 12. But outwardly, whew, he thinks he's dodged a bullet. It's been at least nine months since his sin because now the child has been born. David looked around and felt that he had gotten away with it, but there was one big problem. Look at the last sentence of verse 27. Read it with me. Here we go. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's possible that he pulled off the perfect cover-up. But God saw what he did. And the Bible says the Lord was displeased. The Lord was displeased. Listen to me tonight, and I'm done. My last few... My last few thoughts, and we'll, we'll close, it, close it down, but I, I don't want to lose you. Give me your attention on purpose. Moses said this. He said, be sure your sin will find you out. You say, but I've been uh, involved in um, some sort of sexual perversion for years, and pastor, you know, to be frank, never been caught. Use a VPN, delete my internet history, very careful, cover my tracks. No one knows. Can I tell you this, that your marriage, sir, is suffering because of what you're doing, even if your wife doesn't know you're doing it? Your character has been brought so low, and your soul is rotting from the inside out. I promise you, it is hurting you. It is hurting your spouse. It is hurting your future spouse. Oh, my friend, the Lord sees when no one else sees. I heard someone say one time, they said, where there is no conviction over sin, there's been no conversion from sin. If you can go out and sin in this way and never feel guilty over it, my friend, I, I highly, you should highly question your own salvation. The Spirit of God ought to convict and poke and convict and poke, and convict, and poke. Why? Because every time you do wrong, the Lord sees. There is a liberating feeling when we get our sin into the light, and we confess it, and we forsake it, and we get the victory over it. And that's where God wants us to be. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. I'm not going to have a come-to-the-altar invitation tonight based on the topic and the subject. I'm not going to do that. But I want all of us right now where we are to take a moment and ask God to show us where we can improve and do better. Maybe the, 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 the giants that slew David are not the giants that slay you. Maybe the giants that uh, slay you are a completely different set of giants. Why don't you ask God right now to help reveal that to you and give you the courage to confess your faults very carefully and get the accountability you need to overcome.
Lord, this evening I, I pray that we pray as a church that you'd help us to be pure. We look at the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and we see the sexual sin that many of them struggled with. Lord, we live in a very perverse era, much like the church of Corinth. Lord, may we not be caught up in that stuff. Lord, where we have a brother or sister around us who's struggling, may we pray generically until we know specifically. And Lord, with that knowledge, may we be very careful. May we help. May we guide. Lord, give those who are struggling victory. Lord, may this giant not take us out, take us down. Oh Lord, tonight, we pray that decisions will be made that greatly improve the spiritual quality of life for many, many, many people. Give us a great week this week as we serve you, Lord. May we put you first. And Lord, may we love our neighbor as ourself. May we love you with all of our heart, our soul, our might, our strength. Lord, help us to go forth and be exactly what you'd have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray.